It's Matt. I mean, does that not sum it up? It's Bubba. I think you're way off base. It's Kelly. Bubba's right. I think you're way off. It's Mike. The North remembers, and the mummer's farce is almost done. Wonderful panelists. Uh, well, if you, as long as you're listening to my guests, then you'll be fine, brother. But as you know, uh, from being a guest of mine, listening to me is pretty pointless. Spoiler alert, these podcasts are going to be intermingling book and show material. So if using one or the other offends you in some way, we apologize. But this is the only way we can talk about this stuff. You've been warned. Hope you enjoy. You're listening to the Before the Dragon podcast. Your 351st favorite Game of Thrones and a Song of Ice and Fire podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, that's not too bad out of the, you know, like 14 billion podcasts that are out there covering the same thing. Although I'm guessing that maybe only 50 are active right now. But welcome back to Before the Dragon. It's that podcast dedicated to all things A Song of Ice and Fire and the upcoming Game of Thrones prequel franchises that will be coming out in the next few years. Back so soon, you ask? Yes. Why, you ask? Well, that's a good question. Earlier in 2021, this year, uh, we'd been on hiatus since what? Like fall of 2019. We were waiting on information about the new House of Dragons series and all of that. And then there's this flurry of other news about possible other sequels starting to be developed. And we did a podcast covering that, and we put it out. And then suddenly I'm looking at my feed and there's like thousands of downloads. And I mean, if we're getting that kind of response and we don't even show up on most podcast app rankings, y'all are seriously starved for some Game of Thrones content. Uh, it, it's clear that you'll even listen to idiots ramble that you're so starved. And by the way, I am that idiot. Uh, my name is Matt Murdick and I am a host on this podcast that does a whole lot of talking uh, yet, usually when it's me doing the talking, it manages to say nothing at the same time. Now, to get in contact with me about that, you can tweet to at the letter B, the number four, the Dragon Pod on Twitter, and you can find all back episodes and everything else you need as far as contact information and all of that at mattsaudioblog.com, M-A-T-T-S, audioblog.com. Back to what this podcast is about and why we're doing it. During the podcast earlier this year, we explored some possibilities about how a show like Robert's Rebellion would be done. And I and my co-hosts, uh, we all kind of became armchair showrunners, and we took our stabs at what we'd like to see, what we wouldn't like to see. But that got me to thinking about what actually should be explored for a show like uh, Robert's Rebellion. And hence, we have this podcast series coming out that we're going to call Seeds of Rebellion. And we're going to be looking at some of the central characters regarding Robert's Rebellion. We're going to explore some motivations and, and traits that might find helpful if we were going to do a potential prequel series or for the showrunners. And we're going to be doing some show canon stuff from Game of Thrones. And we're also going to mine some book and source material as well, just like potential showrunners would have to do. And we're going to start today by looking at one singular character, Lyanna Stark. You all know her as Jon Snow's mother and Eddard's sister. And depending on the success of this first podcast, we're going to be continuing this series maybe about once a month or so until we've essentially bled this content dry, which is something that I tend to do. Wouldn't you be bored if I just did all of this in the same rambling monologue like I, I've been doing in the podcast so far. So, as always, I try to surround myself with people who are much smarter than me to counteract my senseless babbling. And as we explore different characters in this series, our cast of hosts, so to speak, will they're going to swap in and out in different configurations. In fact, we had an emergency configuration come up for this very recording, but we'll get to that in a second. Let's get in here right now and introduce the three people who are much smarter than me that will join me for this particular podcast episode. And let me just say that I like to call all of my co-hosts either sirens or titans of A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones, but not because they're scary or because they're deadly, 
But just because they're powerful or their words are going to lure you into the wonderful fold of knowledge about this television show and these book franchises as well. And we're going to start with the Siren of a Song of Ice and Fire from the West. You've known her. She's been on many podcasts. She has her Cheque water safely guarded from those who might steal it because she's actually still conducting research on how to convert that Cheque water into ice cubes for King's Landing. She knows more than you and me combined, it's guaranteed. Uh, although if you're just counting me, that's not saying much. I, I'm going to be a negative on your score. You can find her at Kelly Underfoot on Twitter. Kelly, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Always and forever, of course, Matt. Anytime. And I'm, I'm excited about this content. I will just right off the bat say that I will be pronouncing it Liana because I just adore the way that uh, Lena Hetty said her name in the show. And that's just how it's always been in my head since then. So that will probably be how I say it. So we'll, we'll fight about that, I'm sure, as we go. <laughs> I'll, I'll just go with that because you generally will beat me up about piano and Game of Thrones <laughs> if I don't. Speaking of that, we were supposed to have another siren, uh, the one from the South, Holly. She's sick uh, this evening. It's kind of a last-minute thing. So I thought, well, who can I get to do Holly's readings for this podcast? Who can I get that would be a dead ringer for Holly? And immediately I thought of Bubba from the Joffrey of Podcasts. He's at Fit and Trim on Twitter. Uh, Bubba, welcome back, sir. We're going to be talking about the most dramatic tournament at Aaron Hall ever. Who will get the final rose? Who will get slaughtered in a bed of blood? It's Lyanna Stark. Spoiler! Howdy, everybody. Matt, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate you coming in and bailing us out. Uh, folks who, who have been in on the script of this podcast will know that I've done some serious rewriting in the last few minutes just to try and catch everything up. Uh, Holly, we hope that you're feeling better soon. But I have to get also to this third guy who, I don't know, for a while there when we were doing book podcasts back in podcast Winterfell days, um, I felt like I was taking him under my wing and, and teaching him things and everything. And then I turn around and he's saying things that are way, way smarter than me. I don't even think I've talked to him <laughs> since back in the podcast Winterfell days, which, uh, you know, that feels like 15,000 podcasts ago. And I'm not talking about podcast episodes. I'm talking about like 15,000 podcasts ago because everybody knows how I love to start podcasts and quit them. <laughs> he's a documentarian and he's a humanitarian. And, and based on his portrayal in our, our old Grand Northern Conspiracy podcast on Podcast Winterfell, uh, I believe that Dave and Dan should have cast him as Wy Wyman Manderley a long time ago. Although they probably would have had to stuff about 14 pillows into his costume to make him look the part. He's at Brainwash Lib on Twitter. It's Mike Hall. Mike, it is so good to talk to you again, brother. I'm I'm so happy you're here. Man, it's crazy hearing uh, all these voices again. It's really it's really just lovely. It's uh, so much better than having to watch the end of the show again. Now, before we move on to this, because you've done me a solid here, I do want you to tell everybody a little bit about your projects that you're working on right now. Uh, up front. What kind of podcasting projects have you been doing? Uh, any new films coming out? Anything like that? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm producing two podcasts now and working on another one that I can't talk about in public, which is always a really good thing, right? Um, this is the 50th anniversary of the uh, riot and rebellion at the Attica prison in upstate New York. And so there's a lot of things going on with planning around that. I have a documentary that's going to be coming out where uh, I knew one of the lawyers that defended the Attica brothers after the whole thing was over. It's a lot, and we don't need to get into it all right now, but she has evidence that she sat on for 40 years that the state of New York says still doesn't exist, and I got her last interview before she passed away and made a documentary out of this archive that nobody's seen in 50 years. So it's a lot. It's very dramatic. There's a lot going on. It's very exciting, um, and, you know, it's just... The, uh, obviously, with all of the events of last summer and, and all the conversations that are happening around policing and prisons and all the stuff going on right now, this is, you know, it's a it's kind of a, a high time to be having those conversations. So I'm not leading them. I'm trying to facilitate them, but looking forward to, to kind of getting that out in the world. And in the meantime, I'm producing a podcast called Black Diplomats uh, that is about foreign policy from a perspective that we don't usually hear it from, which is basically anything other than white dudes. 
and it's it stars Terrell uh, Terrell Germain Star, who's a writer for The Root, and he's great. He speaks Russian, and he spends half his time in Ukraine, and he talks. Uh, he he's just really good about kind of globalized white supremacy and defund the Pentagon and all these like things that sound insane when you hear them for the first time. And then when you sit and listen to people kind of talk about the details of it, and, you know, we interview a lot of people who are either in the military or are vets and and know kind of the details of how these budgets get made. We did an interview today that will be coming out tomorrow with Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor, a guy named Matt Duss. And, you know, so these are people who really know kind of how the gears get get greased and, and how all this stuff really works. So it's, it's an interesting kind of deep dive thing. And it's all foreign policy from the perspective of people who aren't white dudes. And lastly is Fun City Cinema, which we've taken a little break, um, but we are building the next season that's going to start in July. And it's completely badass. It's about movies that are have been made in New York. Uh, the host is a guy named Jason Bailey, who has a book coming out in October that is called Fun City Cinema, and it's about 100 years of movies made in New York. He picks a movie from each decade and kind of talks about how that exemplifies other movies that were made at that time. You know, obviously, a lot of movies that are set in New York weren't made there. It's really, like, it's cool. It's 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 like, you know, it's kind of smart guy stuff as far as movies go and talking about movies, but I get to edit it. So it's really edited, you know, I, I edit the hell out of it. You know, it's got a lot of music and it's got a lot of, um, you know, quotes from movies and stuff like that in it. So it's a lot. And you can cut all of that out if you want, because there's too many things sometimes people's eyes start to glaze over. Oh, no, no, no. It's all staying in. And believe me, brother, uh, people can get this stuff wherever they get their normal podcasts. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, funcitycinema.com and blackdiplomats.net. And they're, you know, they are on Apple and Spotify and wherever you like to listen. And if you have a place you like to listen where you don't find it, please let me know and I will put it there. That's my job. Right on, brother. Bubba, you want to tell anybody about the uh, Double P Media uh, before we get started here? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, everybody. If you're interested in more silly podcasts, check out at Double PHQ on Twitter, where you can hear more silliness like you've just heard from me. Let's get going, Matt. Let's jump in. All right. One last disclaimer before we get started here, and that is I did write these, folks. So anything that comes out of these people's mouths other than the discussion parts, hold me solely responsible. Do not at these people. At me. And that way, uh, the, the proper person is being discredited for any lack of, uh, you know, substance regarding any of this stuff. But here we go. The year is 283 AC. That means after the conquest for the uninitiated. And with the sacking of King's Landing, the war known in A Song of Ice and Fire as Robert's Rebellion is at least militarily and politically nearing a conclusion. However, some seeds of that rebellion will actually continue to resonate over the course of time through to a new generation and throughout the seven kingdoms of Westeros, culminating in an epic saga as we know it in Martin's books and on HBO screens. As HBO entertains the idea of bringing the events of Robert's Rebellion to screen, it is time for this convened panel to dive deep into these events as we have learned them and the central characters of the events all through the lenses of books and the show, with careful selections of material to find an overall look at the rebellion for all to enjoy. We will be intermingling book references, which may be prohibitive for television-only faithful, and we will reference television material, which may seem objectionable to book faithful. But we do this to accrue a complete picture that is faithful to a story that will be conveyed on a network that already has its own canon, in the A Song of Ice and Fire universe, which must be considered, as well as the source material that potential showrunners for this series would need to follow in order to faithfully convey the story. There is much less of a mystery to solve here, as might be the case of a theory cast, such as the Grand Northern Conspiracy and other podcasts addressing such type of topics, but there can be considerable exploration into how the gaps found in Martin's books and even in HBO's Game of Thrones might be filled. And we'll start with some questions. Such as, what were the seeds that ultimately shaped the outcome of the land of Westeros as we know it? 
How can identifying these seeds help us not only understand the course of events, but also the reasonings behind the events? With that in mind, let's begin by identifying the key figures that shape the causes of Robert's rebellion. We will start with Lyanna Stark, the daughter of Lord Rickard Stark and sister of Brandon, Benjamin, and Eddard Stark. Lyanna is mentioned, get this, 44 times in the Song of Ice and Fire proper, as well as supplementary materials. That's according to the search of Ice and Fire text search. She also appears in person or by name in at least five Game of Thrones television episodes on HBO. Through both book and show sources, we know that one of the sparks in the rebellion against the Mad King, Eris II Targaryen, involved Lyanna Stark directly, and we will examine that in detail shortly. But first, let's get to know Lyanna Stark herself. Some fans may or may not have nitpicks in the casting of Lyanna Stark in the HBO Game of Thrones series. But there is enough information between the books and the show for us to be able to focus on a few things about her and her character. Lyanna Stark, in terms of biographical numbers, was born in Winterfell, either in 266 or 267 AC. Again, that's after conquest. She was born to Lord Rickard and Lady Liara Stark at Winterfell. She died in 283 AC in Dorne. Keep in mind that there was an aging up of characters in the television show as compared to the books. So we might take into consideration that a television version of Lyanna in a Robert's Rebellion series might be older than just 16 at her death. In fact, the portrayal of Lyanna that we saw in the television show Game of Thrones did seem at least slightly older during the Tower of Joy scenes. Let's think about how Lyanna was considered physically by the world around her. In the publication of The World of Ice and Fire, Yandel describes Lyanna Stark as, quote, a wild and boyish young thing with none of the Princess Elia's delicate beauty, unquote. But there are additional opinions as well. For instance, Kevin Lannister, in the epilogue of A Dance with Dragons, describes her as having, quote, a wild beauty. And her own brother Ned described her as beautiful in Martin's novel, Game of Thrones, in the chapter Arya II. Needle wouldn't break, Arya said defiantly, but her voice betrayed her words. It has a name, does it? Her father sighed. Ah, Arya, you have a wildness in you, child. The wolf blood, my father used to call it. Lyanna had a touch of it, and my brother Brandon more than a touch. It brought them both to an early grave. Arya heard sadness in his voice. He did not often speak of his father, or of the brother and sister who had died before she was born. Lyanna might have carried a sword, if my father had allowed it. You remind me of her sometimes. You even looked like her. Lyanna was beautiful, Arya said, startled. Everybody said so. It was not a thing that was ever said of Arya. She was, Eddard Stark agreed. Beautiful and willful and dead before her time. Now Ned thought of Lyanna's beauty often as we see in Martin's A Game of Thrones novel, Eddard I. Lyanna had only been 16, a child woman of surpassing loveliness. Ned had loved her with all his heart. Robert had loved her even more. She was to have been his bride. As for actual physical descriptions of Lyanna, we can look to descriptions of Arya as well, since to Ned, she resembled her aunt Lyanna. Arya, in various chapter readings throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, is mostly described as having a long face, gray eyes, and brown hair. How much of that is an exact match to Lyanna could be subject to interpretation. But in Martin's A Dance with Dragons, Bran Stark sees a vision of a girl who could be Lyanna engaged in a sparring session of branches with a younger boy who could be her brother Benjen. Bran recognizes the girl as looking like Arya, even though he reasons to himself as to how it cannot actually be her. This is from Martin's Dance with Dragons, Bran 3. Now two children danced across the godswood, hooting at one another as they dueled with broken branches. The girl was the older and taller of the two. Aya! Bran thought eagerly as he watched her leap up onto a rock and cut at the boy, but that couldn't be right. If the girl was Arya, the boy was Bran himself, and he had never worn his hair so long. And Arya never beat me playing swords the way that girl is beating him. (laughs) 
While Ned, or Ned and Arya's thoughts of Lyanna's beauty, may or may not have been showing a little bit of Stark bias, there are character similarities between Arya Stark and her Aunt Lyanna. In A Song of Ice and Fire, including the wolf blood spoken of earlier reading, we can explore other similarities in the moments ahead. But one thing we might conclude about Lyanna herself in book and show is that she was demonstrated as an advocate for those who she felt might be disadvantaged in some way. Let's take a look at one of the most familiar stories that identifies the similarities between Arya Stark and her aunt Lyanna. It's the tale of Lyanna and Howland Reed at the Great Tyranny of Harrenhal, even though neither character is mentioned by name specifically. Mira Reed tells the story to Bran of Lyanna, who is described in the story as the she-wolf when she came to a Cranig man's aid, with Howland being that presumed Cranig man. The passage is from Bran II in Martin's A Storm of Swords. None offered a name, but he marked their faces well so he could revenge himself upon them later. They shoved him down every time he tried to rise and kicked him when he curled up on the ground. But then they heard a roar. That's my father's man you're kicking, howled the she-wolf. A, a, a wolf on four legs at two. Two, said Mira. The she-wolf laid into the squires with a tourney sword, scattering them all. The Cranagman was bruised and bloodied, so she took him back to her lair to clean his cuts and bind them up with linen. There he met her pack brothers, the wild wolf who led them, the quiet wolf beside him, and the pup who was the youngest of the four. And we even find an occurrence in the television show of Lyanna helping the young stable boy, who would later become known as Hodor, with tips to help win a sparring match against her younger brother, Benjen. In addition, it might demonstrate her helping prepare her younger brother for larger opponents and attempting to toughen him up. Either case could be made for this trait, but sadly, Old Nan stopped the sparring before it even started. This is from Season 6, Episode 2, entitled Home, in HBO's Game of Thrones. Up showing off. Liana, would you get out of here? We're sparring. Who are you going to spar with when Ned goes off to the Eyrie? I don't know. What about him? Willis, come here. <laughs> but he's got giant's blood. And you've got training. Sounds like a fair match to me. Benjen always lifts his chin when he's about to charge. Mm, and lowers it when he's going to dodge, my lady. Something else both this last scene and the reading prior demonstrates is Liana's horsemanship as well. This demonstrates a dedication to a skill or even multiple skills such as riding and even swords play. Liana may have been forbidden to have a sword, as Ned told us, but she evidently learned how to use one well, at least based on Mira's story. We can also surmise that Liana was in no way naive to the ways of their world, especially in regards to men. This is from Martin's A Game of Thrones, Eddard 9. Ned let him prattle on. After a time, he quieted and they rode in silence. The streets of King's Landing were dark and deserted. The rain had driven everyone under their roofs. It beat down on Ned's head, warm as blood, and relentless as old gilts. Fat drops of water ran down his face. Robert will never keep to one bed, Lyanna had told him at Winterfell on the night long ago when their father had promised her hand to the young lord of Storm's End. I hear he's gotten a child on some girl in the Vale. Ned had held the babe in his arms. He could scarcely deny her, nor would he lie to his sister but he had assured her that what Robert did before their betrothal was of no matter, that he was a good man, and true, who would love her with all his heart. Liana had only smiled. Love is sweet, dearest Ned, but it cannot change a man's nature. We've already heard Liana being described as willful by Ned in a prior reading here, but there are other writings in Martin's A Game of Thrones novel that describe her being that 
way as well. This is from Eddard Seven in Martin's A Game of Thrones. The mirth curdled on Robert's face. The woman tried to forbid me to fight in the melee. She's sulking in the castle now, damn her. Your sister never would have shamed me like that. You never knew Lyanna as I did, Robert, Ned told him. You saw her beauty, but not the iron underneath. She would have told you that you have no business in the melee. Not you two, the king frowned. You are a sour man, Stark. Too long in the north, all the juices have frozen inside you. While mine are still running, he slapped his chest to prove it. Let's now take a look at Liana's known taste. What of her love of flowers, and more specifically, winter roses? This conversation between Ned and Robert in the crypts of Winterfell is from Martin's A Game of Thrones, Eddard One. She should be on a hill somewhere, under a fruit tree, with the sun and the clouds above her and the rain to wash her clean. I was with her when she died, Ned reminded the king. She wanted to come home, to rest beside Brandon and father. He could hear her still at times. Promise me, she had cried, in a room that smelled of blood and roses. Promise me, Ned. The fever had taken her strength, and her voice had been faint as a whisper. But when he gave her his word, the fear had gone out of his sister's eyes. Ned remembered the way she had smiled then, how tightly her fingers had clutched at his as she gave up her hold on life, the rose petals slipping from her palm, dead and black. After that, he remembered nothing. They had found him still holding her body, silent with grief. The little Cranachman, Holland Reed, had taken her hand from his. Ned could recall none of it. I bring her flowers when I can, he said. Liana was fond of flowers. The correlation between winter roses and Liana continues in a conversation between Ned and Cersei, found in A Game of Thrones, Eddard 12. Her eyes burned green fire in the dusk, like the lioness that was her sigil. The night of our wedding feast, the first time we shared a bed, he called me by your sister's name. He was on top of me, in me, stinking of wine, and he whispered, Liana. Ned Stark thought of pale blue roses, and for a moment he wanted to weep. I do not know which of you I pity most. Finally, let's look at the conversation between Ned and Arya on the steps in the TV show. Perhaps because we've already relayed many similarities drawn between Arya and Lyanna, might we also draw a comparison or similarity between them regarding their attitudes toward marriage? Here's that conversation between Ned and Arya from the television series in Season 1, Episode 4, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Can I be a lord of a holdfest? You will marry a high lord and rule his castle, and your sons shall be knights and princes and lords. Hmm? No, that's not me. Let's pause here for a panel discussion. We found accounts describing Liana physically, describing her skills and parts of her personality, and we've widened our view using book comparisons of Liana and Arya. What conclusions or further questions can we arrive at regarding these things? We know that one of the seeds of Robert's Rebellion was Rhaegar and Liana defying their marriages or betrothals and ending up together. Those events we will explore soon. In the meantime, we can ponder these questions. Why Liana Stark? Was Rhaegar merely drawn to her beauty? Did her willful personality and attitudes about skills reserved for men, or possibly about betrothals in general, influence any of the decisions that were made by either of them? And I'm going to try to lead this conversation. Uh, I want everybody to say whatever they want to, and for however long they want to. But first, I have to let you all know why everybody yelled at me about the casting of Lyanna Stark. Taken from the, all of this material, we see that Liana and Arya evidently looked a lot alike. Even Bran mistook Liana for Arya in the books. Why didn't they even make an effort to cast somebody who looked remotely like Maisie Williams when they cast Liana? In both cases, I didn't see a resemblance at all. So that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. 
The other question that I want to start with you, Kelly, because uh, we should start with you on all things regarding uh, wolves and dragons. Correct. Yes. Is there anything not to like about Liana at all that you can see from what we've explored so far? Uh, from what we've explored so far, like up to the tourney at Harrenhal, absolutely not. Perfect. No notes. I love her. <laughs> <laughs> that was nice and simple. Well, we can go into this further, I suppose, but uh, let me continue with you here. Would Rhaegar be instantly attracted to her? I mean, we know that the, the actual, you know, quote unquote kidnapping took place sometime after this tournament, but he's already like shaming Elia. Uh, by giving Liana the 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 crown of of roses uh, here at the tourney, so I mean, was it that quick? Like he met her at the tourney, and then by the end of the tourney, he's decided that she's she's the one, <laughs> or it's, she's at least worth shaming his wife in front in front of. Yeah, uh, it seems like it, right? And so it feels like I'm, when we get Mira's story of of Liana's exploits and maybe everything that went down it, you know it seems worthy of admiring her and giving her some sort of praise but it doesn't feel like reward that he gave her this crown feels like the end of a you know the prettiest the fairest maiden whereas what she did was brave and and intelligent and noble i don't feel like those are the things that you give somebody a crown of flowers for at the end of attorney but i guess that was all he had to give and it was a public demonstration but it was a weird demonstration at that point and very public. And you guys will go into more of that with we go over Rhaegar. But if that was the only way he could demonstrate that, that was the way that he should. But since I feel like there were other ways he could have done that, that was probably a weird choice. And who, why did he think he would get any other reaction than he did at that point? You know? <laughs> right. Mike, it seems to me that there's a an awful lot of still in the books and as far as any histories that we've gotten in the television show, either through the histories and lures or whatever, it feels to me like there's still a lot of missing pieces uh, about what happened at, turning, at, at the tourney of Her Hall. Did Rhaegar find out about Lyanna uh, doing the whole uh, bit with Hallen Reed, you know, saving him? Do you suspect that if we had more of that information, then it might be easier to see Rhaegar's attraction to Lyanna? It doesn't seem to me like that was anything like that was kind of the driving force. And also, I don't and maybe we'll talk more about this as we get into him. But I've never really thought of Rhaegar seems to me to be very much kind of in his head all the time. You know, he's like writing poems and like plucking little guitars. And then he's like killing people with this big sword or whatever. But he's not I don't know, like to me, like that has always seemed like something that uh like it was more impulsive than that he definitely seems to me like a person who would believe in you know love at first sight right and all that kind of um all those romantic things you know that you write ballads about and also i think that there's a point that you make you know in the questions here did her willful personality and attitudes about skills reserved for men or about betrothals i mean or just her personality in general you know, this is somebody who can have whatever he sets his eyes on. But she also knows, like, as, you know, Ned's sister and, and as a Stark, right, that, like, he can't literally just do whatever he wants to her, right? <laughs> like, that's not how that's going to work. And so she has a little bit of, of protection from her status and probably, you know, had fun taking advantage of that, right? And, like, talking shit on these guys. We know that, you know, we see Arya with the bow and arrow and she enjoyed that we you know we hear about liana with the sword so it seems like yeah it's that kind of like she is it seems like maybe one of the only other people he's ever met who feels like she can do whatever the f she wants too. baba you are famous uh for our days in podcast winterfell of you rephrasing everything that i try to bring up and and focusing it more on what should actually be asked so what kind of questions would you ask Kelly or Mike, or if you dare, myself, uh, regarding any of this? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, and this is terrible to come to mind, and it's so topical, but because of when we're recording this in the early parts of 2021, maybe people understand. But I hear this story, and a bit of me thinks where? I think to Prince Charles. 
He had had two children with his married wife, Princess Diana, and after two children, he starts wandering around. And sure enough, Prince Rhaegar had two children with his wife, and then suddenly he starts wandering eyes. And that's not that's completely opposite of the picture that we get painted of Rhaegar. But what's funny is hearing it now at this time, because the royal family is so much in the news, I'm thinking of Rhaegar as Prince Charles to defend <laughs> Rhaegar. <laughs> like Rhaegar is always painted so heroically, so handsomely, so, you know, kind of admirable when in a lot of ways what he did wasn't admirable. So that's what I love about this. And I also love that there's this theory I read after I had a really hard breakup, TMI, I know, but this theory was that we are, there are a million attractive, wonderful people in the world, but we're only attracted to certain people. We're attracted to people who have the traits that we have that we like, but who also have the traits that we wish we had. So listening to this whole story, I'm thinking, well, what traits would Rhaegar have that he would like Lyanna had? And well, I think Rhaegar was proud of his skills with a sword and probably jousting, obviously. So the fact that he has uh, see someone who is also good at jousting, and you know, this goes into the whole theory, he obviously knew she was the Knight of the Laughing Tree. But then what theory, what traits did Lyanna have that Rhaegar kind of wish he had? Well, obviously, he really seemingly wasn't much of a rebellion figure against his own father. And here was Lyanna Stark, somebody rebelling and doing kind of whatever she wanted to. This is what Mike was getting at. And so that would be a trait that he probably wishes he had. And seeing that in somebody else, it probably does inspire him to become Prince Charles. Oh, no. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, just keep going there. It'll, it'll land eventually. Um, yeah. So as the token lady on the panel, uh, as we discuss this female character, I will point out that a, a lot of the way that these questions are being framed are, what was it about Liana that had this prince no, good point. <laughs> so, so drawn to her? Like, um, from, you know, the other perspective is that, and it is important, I think, you know, to, to, to be fair, that there are uh, narratively these traits about when somebody is of a higher status that they, you know that they do and they are in a situation where they shouldn't be looking around and then they do there is something about Liana that has drawn him to her and the good point about like Rhaegar I think there's some political maneuvering happening and um, they talk about it in the world of ice and fire how they were suspected that this gathering at Harrenhal was actually a front for this political machinations to get uh, King Ares off the throne and to get, have install Rhaegar and to heal some of the madness that the king was kind of falling into. So he was doing some of this stuff just a little bit more clandestine. So to be fair, you know, he was definitely trying, but to see her do it so openly and to, I think that would be appealing to Rhaegar in that way, that she was acting on these impulses to just out, you know, uh, you know, uh, justice to people who deserve it. Uh, so immediately, that would be very, very appealing to him. And as he's working these behind the scenes, you know, getting everybody in, in place, you know, strategies and, and all of that would seem very tedious. So to see somebody immediately hand out justice where it's needed, I would look at that and admire the person that did that. So definitely in that moment that's probably what it was raker's got a lot of this backstory of like prophecies and and just kind of being kind of angsty in general so there's a lot that is in his mentality that i don't understand <laughs> and um well that well, may that may play into it as well Go ahead. kelly as the only woman on this panel <laughs> i was gonna say in the passage we just read She's very upset that Robert has fooled around and already had a bastard child. Yeah, that's pretty bad. But Rhaegar's married with two kids. Mm. That kind of makes him seem safe in that way. Um, he's an adventure that she doesn't have to commit to, um, mm. you know. So he, there's a bit there that's exciting and wild and wolf bloody, you know. That she. So there's also, um, I think I heard this on uh, Radio Westeros, which has a great background on Lyanna. Um, but they talked about the song that is. Tom Seven Strings sings to Arya at some point that's about um, I can be your forest love and you my forest lass <laughs> Matt inserts song here no um, <laughs> <laughs> but 
but the uh, but the background on that story, that song is that there is a um, a couple that meet out in the oh it's my feather bed that's the song and the the feather bed is out in the the woods and then the theory is that the song indicates that Rhaegar and Lyanna might have met as Ares had sent out his son and guards to find this mystery knight that Lyanna was portraying and to bring them to unveil who this person was because he was convinced that they were uh, mocking him. And Rhaegar presumably found Lyanna as she was changing under a tree and he told her, you know, he admired what she did or something. And then they fell in love and had a a tryst. (laughs) And if it, you know, the character in the song fits Liana's character where she kind of, he says, I will make you my bride and my my lady. And she says, no, I will stay in the forest and you'll be my forest love. And that's all it is. So um, it's possible that they just had an exciting weekend. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and that's all it was to her. And, you know, maybe by this time, even Liana knew that Robert had had a, um, a bastard and had was coming to the marriage bed, not a virgin in her, in her mind. She's like, well, <laughs> nor shall I. <laughs> so there's, there's a bit to more to this, this weekend or this, I don't know how long this turkey ended up being probably a fortnight. They tend to be very long. Um, but yeah, so that there was more romance than just this laying the, the roses on her lap. Like they had more yeah. going on in the background. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that, that's why I, I'm wondering if we're going to see some, hopefully some, some of those pieces filled in uh, if we were to get a series like this, I will say this, I find very hard to find anything to dislike about Liana, except this. I feel like she just picked on Benjamin a heck of a lot. I mean, she's beating him at play swords uh, as a kid as brand sees. Um, she's pitting, uh, the biggest kid ever <laughs> against ben, poor Benjamin in a sparring match in the television show. Uh, later on, we're going to hear a little bit about pouring wine on Benjamin's head at Heron Hall. So does she just need somebody to pick on to exert her superiority over someone? It's That's what it felt like to me at, at some points when I accrue all of this information together. Um, that, you know, he was the, he was the youngest. And so naturally everybody picked on him, but seems like she picked on him a lot more. Uh, maybe he was the only one that would play with her. Anybody think that, uh, anyway, uh, no, 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 I, uh, for sure. I I can also relate to that. I am a, uh, child of divorce who was raised by my dad and my two brothers. So I have an older brother and a younger brother, and I can totally relate to this being a middle, you know, just in a house of dudes. (laughs) And you, you know, I think if you were to ignore her gender, like this would just be normal sibling, uh, (laughs) roughhousing. And I could see how she would have maybe developed the way she even did with this, just, just these boyish tendencies. One, being in the North. You know, I grew up in Michigan. I hear you, girl. And then two, like just being in a house of boys. Um, you just, you you develop, you know, kind of a comfort with roughhousing. <laughs> There's also, I think, you know, we see Arya saying, like, can I at least, like, just run a fold fast? Can you give me something? Like, I just don't want to, you know, wear dresses and have kids. I'm not into that. And and that kind of, you know, of, of frustration with the limitations of her gender and, and with all of these comparisons between the two, you know, uh, I mean, it seems reasonable to think that, you know, Liana might have felt the same and might have wanted to take that out on somebody. I will try to lead more of a focus on the Liana point of view uh, for this um but I do understand that there is not a lot of narrative uh, or rhetorical like book stuff or even show stuff that we can draw on to beyond to see her as a character in and of herself. You kind of have to do a lot of legwork to see her beyond her effect, which was mostly through Rhaegar and, and her storyline and her all of that. So just stretch a little bit to try to get some more of that in here. <laughs> Well, if there are no objections, stop me anytime there are, but uh, we'll move on to the second part of our discussion. We've already discussed, loosely, some of the things that might have drawn Rhaegar to Lyanna, but what about the other way around? We will now turn to Lyanna's role in these events that become one of the seeds that flowered, pun intended, (laughs) to become Robert's Rebellion. And we will begin with another histories and lore segment, this time from season five of HBO's Game of Thrones series. The story is entitled The Great Tourney at Hall," told by Mira Reed, and it includes some events 
from the mirror story that we explored earlier from our A Song of Ice and Fire readings. However, in this telling, there are a few additional details that might help us give additional reasons for Liana's feelings towards Rhaegar. That evening, there was to be a feast in Heron Hall to mark the opening of the tourney, and Liana insisted that my father attend, as he was of high birth, with as much of a right to a place at the bench as any other man. She was not easy to refuse, this wolf maid, so my father borrowed suitable clothes from Benjen and went up to the great castle. Under Heron's great roof, my father ate and drank with his fellow Northmen. A black brother beseeched the knights to join the knight's watch, to snickers and smiles. Prince Rhaegar sang a song so sad that it brought tears to Lyanna's eyes, but when Benjen teased her for it, she poured wine over his head. Was this a breaking moment for Lyanna? Did she perhaps decide that a betrothal to someone who had already had a bastard child was not in her best interest? When a prince's song had moved her to tears? What we do know from both the television show and the books, as well as the supplementary information provided to us in the world of Ice and Fire, the great tourney at Hall is held during the fall spring in 281 A.C., and it was definitely one of those sparks that ignited perhaps an already flammable tension that existed throughout Westeros. This next quote comes from the World of Ice and Fire section entitled, The Fall of the Dragons, The Year of the False Spring. And when the triumphant Prince of Dragonstone, named Lyanna Stark, daughter of the Lord of Winterfell, the Queen of Love and Beauty, placing a garland of blue roses in her lap with the tip of his lance, the Lickspittle Lords gathered round the king declared that further proof of his perfidy. Why would the prince have thus given insult to his own wife, the Princess Elia Martell of Dorne, who was present, unless it was to help him gain the Iron Throne? The crowning of the Stark girl, who was by all reports a wild and boyish young thing, with none of the Princess Elia's delicate beauty, could only have been meant to win the allegiance of Winterfell to Prince Rhaegar's cause, Simmons Staunton suggested to the king. Yet if this were true, why did Lady Lyanna's brothers seem so distraught at the honor the prince had bestowed upon her? And we get a similar story in the television show as Littlefinger speaks to Sansa in the crypts of Winterfell at Lyanna's grave in Season 5, Episode 4, Sons of the Harpy. I saw her once, a boy living with your mother's family. Lord Wint held a great tourney at Harrenhal. Everyone was there, the Mad King, your father, Robert Baratheon, and Lyanna. She was already promised to Robert. You can imagine what it was like for me, a boy from nowhere, with nothing to his name, watching these legendary men tilting at the lists. The last two riders were Bearston Selmy and Rhaegar Targaryen, and when Rhaegar won, everyone cheered for the prince. I remember the girls laughing when he took off his helmet and they saw his that silver hair. How handsome he was, until he rode right past his wife, Elia Martell, and all the smiles died. I'd never seen so many people so quiet. He rode past his wife, and he laid a crown of winter roses in Liana's lap, blue as frost. How many tens of thousands had to die because Rhaegar chose your aunt? Yes, he chose her, and then kidnapped her and raped her. After a smirk, which hints that he knows more than he's revealed, Littlefinger then changes the subject. Come, let us speak somewhere the dead can't hear us. Who to believe? Other questions might have been placed in TV viewers' minds early on in the series when the validity of the claim that Rhaegar had actually kidnapped Lyanna at all came into question. This happened in the histories and lore sections for season one of the television show. The refute of the claim was cleverly disguised as a red herring, given that it was voiced by Viserys Targaryen, someone found to have a credibility that would be in question to all viewers. This folly of presenting a truth hidden in an account from a possibly unreliable narrator did have at least some success, as it fooled our program's main host early on, a host who had barely turned a single page of the books at the time. Matt. 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 
Here's the quote from Viserys Targaryen's account of Robert's Rebellion in the season one, Histories and Lore. There are some who dare to claim Robert and his allies had reason to rebel. They say the crown prince stole the usurper's lady love. They say my father, King Aerys, murdered Rickard Stark and his son without just cause. Whether these charges are true or not, it doesn't matter. The dragon answers to no one. And it would seem to us, most likely as book readers looking in between Martin's words, and certainly as television show viewers, that Littlefinger did in fact know something more about the relationship of Lyanna and Rhaegar in the television show. While Martin has yet to completely confirm what many have suspected in the books, the television show has offered us a definitive answer as to whether Rhaegar kidnapped and raped Lyanna or not. In episode 5 of season 7 of the television show, in an episode called Eastwatch, there's a scene with Sam where Gilly stumbles upon the first piece of evidence pointing to Rhaegar's intent to marry Lyanna, free of the complications from his first marriage with Elia Martell. What does annulment mean? It's when a man sets aside his lawful wife. Maynard says here that he issued an annulment for a Prince Ragger and remarried him to someone else at the same time in a secret ceremony in Dorne. Is that a common thing in the South or... These maesters! These do not seem to be the actions of a man who merely seeks carnal pleasures. These seem to be the actions of a man in love. And then later in the television season, during Season 7, Episode 7, The Dragon and Wolf, Sam and Bran put together the idea that the story of Rhaegar and Lyanna is not one of perpetrator and victim at all, as many in Westeros had suspected, but rather a story of two people in love with one another. He needs to know the truth. Truth about what? About himself. No one knows. No one but me. John isn't really my father's son. He's the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and my aunt Lyanna Stark. He was born in a tower in Dorne. His last name isn't really Snow, it's Sand. It's not. Dornish bastards are named Sand. At the Citadel, I transcribed the High Septon's diary. He annulled Rhaegar's marriage to Elia. He wed Rhaegar and Lyanna in a secret ceremony. Are you certain? It's what the High Septon wrote in his private diary. I don't know why he'd lie. Is this something you can see? Bran looks back into the past, and he sees Rhaegar and Lyanna's wedding. Robert's rebellion was built on a lie. Rhaegar didn't kidnap my aunt or rape her. He loved her, and she loved him. Armed with this information, let's discuss these events in our second discussion section. With Lyanna's point of view in mind, I knew I could rely on you, Matt. <laughs> right. What parts of Rhaegar would have been attractive to Lyanna? Was the overall cost of their love worth it? Should Matt even be allowed to speak on any of this? No. <laughs> Probably not. But, uh, Matt, why don't you lead us through this next discussion segment? <laughs> well, I'm just going to put this right off. And, and, and here's what I'm going to say, which is going to offend a lot of people. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a scenario for who Rhaegar is to Lyanna. And I'm going to take you back to a time before probably Kelly. I don't know if Kelly was even born yet or not. But I'm going to take you back to the mid to late 1980s. So Rhaegar, in this scenario, he's, he's in an 80s hair band, right? He, he'd, he'd be the lead guitar player who actually sings better than the, the lead singer. He's the one who wrote all the songs. And he would probably be the, also the guy that wore those really tight rock pants that showed off his well-endowed junk all the way to the 40th row of the concert hall. Randy Rhodes. Randy Rhodes. <laughs> now, Liana, you know, she's probably going to say, heck yeah, you've got Liana here and she's happy. She knows that Rhaegar writes and performs beautiful songs. He's hot, for crying out loud. And he gets her, you know, he gets her winter roses every day or something like that. I mean, does that not sum it up? 
I think you're way off base. And I really think, once again, Kelly's kind of talked about this already. But Kelly, why would a young woman who seems very independent in spirit be attracted to somebody who is a pretty boy in some ways? (laughs) Bubba's right. I think you're way off. (laughs) But I I think just because um, when I see her taking care of of Howlin' Reed, um, standing up for the little guy, I don't see her showing any interest in a prince. Um, she was barely impressed by her betrothed, who's a lord. Um, she, uh, her dad's a lord. Like she, she would find some of this stuff a little bit contrived. You know, showmanship. That's great. What do you really like? And I think when maybe when she saw him sing that song, it showed a side of him that was more sensitive than his big burly. Like she, she's got a Robert Baratheon. She's she doesn't need a fighter. She's uninterested in him solely based on that. Uh, so she has more complexity, I think, to her attracted if she is really truly attracted to him in this moment, if this is when it blossomed, <laughs> as you put it, Matt. I think it would probably have been if in a moment where they got to know each other more like personally, like if he did find her uh, when he was sent to look for her and he didn't turn her over and they just had an evening chat and she realized wow this guy who the you know has all of the privilege in the world but is still able to be a normal person is actually an interesting person then there is potential there i think in her position she has the privilege of not being overly impressed by flashy attractive and what all of the maidens in the realm are are drawn to uh storybook wise you know kind of like aria like yes he's a storybook boy but that's not what she's she's into as much as the uh the way that he defies his role as a prince and is more approachable in those moments you know (laughs) can i also say like the starks were actively i mean you know the whole situation with the mad king like they were all up in the politics of all of this, right? As they are the whole time we know them and as far back as these stories go, they're one of the families who's kind of leading the whole situation. So, you know, I it's also, I, I don't, we don't really talk about it very much, but it seems reasonable to assume that she would be aware of the situation with the Mad King, you know, that she would be aware that, you know, there's efforts in place to try to, to, you know, at least rein him in, if not, you know, replace him, all that kind of stuff. So she might have, you know, that might have been It just kind of like I feel like we also can't discount that as a potential interest of hers, not realizing that she would ha- find herself with a personal connection to this guy also. Um, but, you know, potentially trying to kind of influence her in some way, be a part of the politics of all of this. Well, yeah, in that way, like, would you see him trying and to use her as a political pawn to get at Winterfell since like, yeah. So the, the theories are that the Lords of the, you know, outside of the um, King's Landing area are doing all of these patrols and matchmakings to try to like sure up some alliances so that if something did happen with the Mad King, that there was a united front. And so, yes, there might have been some awareness of like, why all that was going on, like Brandon and Catelyn were getting betrothed, uh, so the Riverlands were in there, and now you've got Storm's End, which is in and uh, in the North. Like everyone's getting like tied off, and so there's I think a overt political things happening that Lyanna at 15, which is how she is at this point, um, might be aware of. But I'm wondering from the reverse side, from Rhaegar being aware of it as well, because betrothals are public knowledge, uh, if he would see her as a way to shore up some allies for his machinations and, and you know to tie it all together, maybe they were using each other. <laughs> I consider that overly cynical. And I say because I don't think he needed to leave his wife and marry her to have the support to make it all happen. And I mean, like, in, initial, the... just initially, like he saw her as a way, you mm-hmm. know, he's 22 at this time and she's 15. So maybe like seeing a way to maybe just not, 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 not actually uh, wooing her <laughs> to put it nicely, but just to initially strike up, you know, a conversation with her and right. see and her as an avenue. You think that's cynical? <laughs> no, I don't. Not at all. In the same way that I think, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be cynical for, you know, her family to have her kind of be able to figure out a way to kind of check him out too. I mean, it seemed like everybody respected her 
within the family. I mean, when they talk about her later, they also, you know, when they talk about her as being willful and that kind of stuff, right? There's, I mean, there's a certain res- amount of respect balled up in that. So I don't know though. Everybody's kids. Like, do you trust a 15 year old with anything? But like at that age, you know, the way it's kind of written and in that time, maybe so. I, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just picturing like engaging in the tourney, like just thinking that they're a little bit above their, you know, they're all punching a little above their weight, like thinking that they're adults when they're not, you know, and trying to maybe play these games of the of the lords or or at least their version of it at their age, maybe. <laughs> well, I'm still asking the question, what about Liana's attraction to Rhaegar? Because uh, it feels like this is folding back on uh, how Rhaegar was looking at it when I don't really see well I think this is one thing you might you have kind of right is that he was a rock star bro like he was beautiful he had fancy gear he rode a big ass horse you know what I mean like he was like I and I think the that like in that way I felt like your comparison to be the one of the three people here who's not who's, who's not gonna like ride that hard on it right like I don't gotta jump from the top rope I can top, jump from the bottom rope at least like he was a rock star and I think, you know, everybody looked at him and he was shiny in the sun and, and, you know, so I think there was elements of that involved in it. Uh, and you know, that's how that works, right? That's okay too. Matt, Matt, let me, let me take a swing at it with my same, uh, kind of process I did earlier. So you're attracted to people who have traits that you have, that you're proud that you have. So she is independent. And she, you know, doesn't care what people think. So the fact that Rhaegar mm, was okay, independent and was willing to not turn her into his father as the Knight of the Laughing Tree, the fact that he was willing to break tradition and give the Queen of Love and Beauty to someone who wasn't his wife because it's like the hell with traditions, the fact that she is an independent thinker, she'd be attracted to another independent thinker. Now, once again, what trait maybe does she wish she had? Maybe she wishes that she could be more comfortable in the uh, kind of wide public arena, which Rhaegar was very comfortable in the public arena, certainly in this large tournament. So maybe those are kind of the two of the traits that that would have appealed to her. I'm excited because this is one of those areas of this that there is a lot of blank space in the story that the show could really build on and explain in, in mm-hmm. whatever interpretative way that they choose to do so. Um, it will have to be compelling in order to be believable because yes, this there's a lot riding on it and it has to it has to make sense. And there's a couple of ways I think it can make sense. Like we said, either you know she saw a political advantage or she saw a rebellious moment uh she could take advantage of or she truly did find him appealing and attractive and and wanted to have an adventure (laughs) now matt in this discussion point we wrote out the question was the overall cost of their love worth it now that kind of is an is an uh omni you know omnipotent uh an overseer i think as an audience we would question if their love was worth it but I would say in when you're in a relationship and when you're deeply falling in love, a lot of times people think there's nobody else in the world but us. Yeah. And so could they see, could they foresee or have known how dangerous it could and would get? I don't think, sadly, I don't think they thought that far ahead. Oh, and just to put it in Jamie Lannister's words, you don't choose who you love, right? You can't choose who you love. And uh, that seems to be as big a theme in George's book as any. Uh, And uh, I don't know how well that was explored in the television show, obviously, in the stuff that was taken from the source material. We found a lot of that. So uh, it feels to me uh, like your point's very valid there, Bubba, that they, you know, as far as those ramifications go, uh, we could look at some of those ramifications right now if anybody wanted to, because we move on to part three. We're going to pause right now at this point of the episode we will have a part two about liana coming up next week in the meantime follow kelly because she's much smarter than me as she just proved at kelly underfoot on twitter follow bubba at fit and trim that's f-i-t-t-e-n-t-r-i-m on twitter follow mike at brainwashed 
lib. Please subscribe, rate, and review to Double P Podcasts or to Double P Media on YouTube. Please subscribe, rate, and review to Mike's Podcasts, The Black Diplomats, and Fun City Cinema. Do the thing. Support their podcast because they do a much better job running their podcast than I do running mine. Back with Liana Part 2 next week. Tweet to the letter B, the number 4, the Dragon Pod. Send emails to matsaudioblog at gmail.com or call 314-269-0421. Find all information and back episodes at matsaudioblog.com.